right now, we're on the line with us. We have one tough Democrat, so tough that she takes no crap from anybody. With us today, a calling in from a far, far away land, uh, must be on vacation, uh, is Melissa DeRosa. She was secretary to Governor Cuomo. Uh, the word secretary doesn't mean you take shorthand. In Albany, the word secretary is like you, you're the boss. You're the chief of staff. Nobody gets to the governor unless they go through you. Melissa DeRosa, welcome to WABC. Good morning, guys. How you doing? I, we're waiting for you to, 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 to wake us up. Well, I heard some of the conversation before I got on. And first of all, John, I have to say, I I think that the reason you're a billionaire is because you don't spend money stupidly. So I think the Uber on the way to the office as opposed to a driver or a $600 car service like AOC took to the Met Gala is the way you stay a billionaire. So I commend you on making, continuing to make smart financial choices. It was over $22. Well, that's also crazy. And I took a cab the other day from 55th up to 77th that I almost fell over when I saw the taxes that were added onto it. And Albany is talking about increasing taxes again. So, you know, just to <laughs> Melissa, adding to the affordability crisis. Where do we start off this morning? There's so many things going on. And they, first of all, I was talking with Andrew here. And I said, I, uh, people are talking about there's never been so much division in our country since the Civil War 140 years ago. No, John, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, you know, it really feels like we have been reduced to tribalism at this point, where everyone is sort of pitted against each other. And we are at a moment in our city, in our state, in our country, where the stakes couldn't be higher, and we really need people to pull together and to get through a lot of this post-COVID trauma, a lot of the crime which is spiraling out of control in a number of American cities, homelessness, affordability across the board. And, you know, the opposite is happening. And and I, you know, I see what happened in the Chicago race, um, which, you know, and I heard you guys talking about it, you know, and we talked about this a little bit the other night when I was on. I feel like you govern, you know, you, you politics is you campaign in poetry, you govern in prose. And I think this newly elected mayor is going to learn very quickly that you cannot govern a city like Chicago by saying things like defund the police and not getting behind law and order. And, you know, a city as blue as New York, Andrew's father, you know, won in a city as blue as New York because people wanted law and order and wanted someone to pick up the clean up the crime issue. And the question to me when I look at a place like Chicago is how bad do things have to get before the people there get it? So, I, you know, I guess we'll see. You know, uh, Melissa, you wrote an article a couple days ago after the indictment of President Trump uh, by Alvin Bragg uh, saying that uh, the New York indictment looks political. Now, now you and I certainly are on the opposite end of the political spectrum here, um, but you talk about how this threatens uh, democracy. Uh, tell me a little bit more about your thought process in terms of uh, what you think this indictment looks like. You know, look, it's it's really troubling to me when I look at this, and, and it's a larger conversation, but, you know, I think that Alvin Bragg is somebody who sort of had his back up against a wall. I think that Mark Pomerantz, who was the former ADA who worked in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, you know, very vocally criticized him for not bringing a, di- a different case against the Trump Foundation that Tish James is pursuing civilly. And I think that Bragg was embarrassed, and I think that the left was being highly critical of him. And so what is he 
he do? He decides I have to bring something. I need to bring something to show I'm going to be tough on Trump. And that's not how the justice system is supposed to work. And so when you look at, you know, and I wrote that article before the charges were unveiled, which I was taking a little bit of a risk because, mm-hmm. as I said in my piece, I didn't know if there was going to be some massive smoking gun or some major scheme to defraud or something. But we were all right. It sort of was what we thought it would be was what we got. And so what you have is this Stormy Daniels, you know, payoff to this woman, adult film actress who, you know, he paid $130,000 to at the height of the presidential campaign in 2016 through Michael Cohen. And you're relying sort of on the word of a convicted perjurer and a convicted tax evader and campaign finance fraudster and Michael Cohen who has sort of reinvented himself as an anti-Trump person and now has like a platform every day on MSNBC, which is just crazy to me. In any other circumstance, they would never give a person like that a platform. But because he agrees with them politically, they put him on almost daily. And, you know, the whole thing just looks political. It's a books and records case, which has a two-year statute of limitations. So they're blue past the statute of limitations, and they upcharged it to tie it into campaign finance and say, you know, he was really doing this to hide this from the voters, and so it should have been a campaign finance disclosure. And, you know, the thing that really gets to me on this is that the Southern District of New York, your father was U.S. attorney for the Southern District, my former mother-in-law was a you know, U.S. attorney for the Southern District, mm-hmm. this tradition of really tough prosecutors who run the Southern District opted not to do this very same case. And so it's like you're telling me the Southern District didn't bring this case and you're going to bring this case, Alvin Bragg. And can you really think of a worse messenger than a guy who downcharges everything and who gives guest appearance, you know, desk appearance tickets for crimes versus holding them accountable? What in his first 100 day memo, if you remember, he said that he was going to downgrade a number of, of these crimes and not charge them appropriately because in his opinion, they shouldn't be you know, treated as crime, and then to do this. And so in my opinion, if you're going to charge the former president of the United States with a crime, and you're going to do something like this that you know is going to divide the nation, that you know is going to be really politically intense and, and make the division worse, it better be for a damn good reason, and this is not it. So, you, you know... Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, John. Well, so, well I, I was, was going to say then, that we no, had a big discussion yesterday on uh, uh, on ethics, uh, in theory, in theory, in, in good theory, uh, that some of these DAs are violating their oath of office about getting their job done. You know, it, well, if you're talking about by not prosecuting crimes, I agree with you, because district attorneys are not elected to set laws, right? That is the job of the legislature. That is the job of Congress. That is the job of the mayor, the governor, the city council. It is not the job of prosecutors. Now, selective prosecution, every prosecution that you choose to do is by, you know, its very nature selective, right? You pick and choose which cases to pursue. But when you decide that you're not going to bring whole swaths of cases and categories of cases because you believe in your opinion that something shouldn't be a crime, well, then run for Congress or run for legislature, you know, Senate or Assembly and change the laws. It's not your job to write the laws. It's your job to enforce the laws. I agree 100 uh, percent. Uh, their job is to enforce the laws. Their job is to, to, to follow the law without looking at the person's color, without looking at the person's skin, without looking at the, uh, at the person. Equal justice for all. And in the last 
a few years, there's no equal justice for us. And, John, you said, you know, looking without looking at people's color. That's not even skin color. That's also political color, red or blue, because we're yes. seeing this being yes. uh, a case where you have Alvin Bragg, who got 81% of the vote in Manhattan, and he's playing to that 81% saying, you know what, I'm going to have enough of them that will stick me, that stick with me, they'll be motivated by this, uh, where I can go after the guy who represents the, the red corner in this, who's we Donald have, Trump, and nail him. We have a civil war going on in our in our country uh and uh we also have an economic war going on in the world and i talked about that on fox yesterday and we can talk about it later on too uh there's a war going on melissa on where the united states wants uh 55 to 65 dollar oil and it's very very possible to have it there and uh uh china Russia, our enemies, want $8,500 oil. For whom, uh, you know, and, and there's an economic war going because in the last year or so, year and a half, a trillion dollars of wealth has moved from, from the United States and North America over to Saudi Arabia, Russia. We, the money that moved over to Russia fueled the war in the Ukraine. So it's a vicious circle. What's going on? Well, so I want to get back one. I want to say one quick thing on your on your prior point, and then let's talk about the economic ahead, side. No, we're, we're here to talk about everything, Melissa. You can stay as long as you want. <laughs> well, so the one point I do want to make is, and I, I agree, I think we are in the press. I think that the country's never been more divided than it has been before. But it's you have to hold both sides accountable. And you look at what happened yesterday in Tennessee, where they where they expelled two members of the legislature who were holding a peaceful protest on the floor on gun violence. And this is, you know, within two weeks of those babies being shot and killed at the church school in Tennessee, you know, it's year after year, more higher body counts and the, you know, the conversation ratchets up and ratchets up and nothing happens. And there was a peaceful protest with three members of the legislature on the floor in the Tennessee House yesterday. And the Tennessee House voted to expel two of them, which are two black men and not the third, which was a white woman in her 60s. And what kind of message does that send? Number one, about peaceful assembly and free speech and the the right to speak up, but also why are you expelling the two black men and not the white woman? And and I'm saying this, I bring this up, and I think it's important because I know, John, you care about balance and the sensible middle. And I think when we hold the left accountable, which I do, I think, pretty loudly um, for someone of my own party more than most, you have to call it out on both sides. Because in order to get... I I call it out on both sides all the time. So I'm glad you're calling it out on both sides. But we, so Melissa, that, we, we have to take a break, but I want you to st- Can you stay on? And we'll come back right yes, after yes, the break. Yes. Can we take yes. a break and we're gonna keep Melissa on and we're going to come right back? Friends in the morning.
Well, we're back, and uh, hopefully uh, we have it with Melissa, uh, one of my favorite people, and one strong, uh, one strong lady. Uh, Melissa, are you there? I am here, John. Where where were we? I mean, uh, let, let, me, let me tell you something. We have a civil war. We have an economic war. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you take you take the floor. No, I think. Look, I think that what we're seeing is that partisanship is at an all time high. And I think that I just don't know the way out of it. And what makes me very nervous, and I wrote about this in my piece this week, is that when you think about every other developed nation in the country or in the world, excuse me, first world countries, typically after two to three hundred years of government ends up there ends up being this kind of hyperpartisanship rife, civil war, and then something else comes. And we saw on January 6th how sort of delicate democracy is and tenuous democracy is. And it makes me very nervous and uncomfortable when you look at how hyperpartisan the press has become and when you see what's going on in terms of prosecutorial misconduct across the board, not just, you know, what we talked about this morning, but I see it everywhere I look, going back to Comey, going back to Barr, going, you can see it all over the place. And, it, you know, a society can only take so much before it finally erupts. And you layer into that all of the economic issues you're talking about, John, the affordability, the inflation, the unease in the stock market. You know, people are speculating potentially a recession on the horizon. And at what point does the whole thing blow? And so I think that, you know, this is a dangerous moment and we've got to be trying to bring people together. You know, John, I was actually perusing through your book a couple of days ago. And I remember at the very end, you've got a great little section called Counsel by Cats and Matitis, where at 16 points, you talk about all the important little points there. And point 10 is the right time to negotiate is when the other person needs the deal. And that got me to thinking a little bit about your former boss, Melissa, because, you know, I've been very critical. I ran a gubernatorial campaign where, uh, you know, I think some of the shortcomings of the Cuomo administration, I tried to highlight through a lot of that. But one of the things that I would say would have never happened under a Cuomo administration is what happened at the very end of last year when the members of the Assembly and the State Senate got called in for a special session to get a $40,000 raise. And that got me to thinking about that point. She ultimately lost her leverage. How is that playing out right now during this budget negotiation? I know you and I talked before when she could not get her judge through that was so important. But how is that playing out now, considering she lost such a big leverage point? I mean, Andrew, it's, it's the word debacle does not, you know, do justice to what's happening in Albany right now. So, I mean, look. Kathy Hochul comes in, you know, everyone gives gives her a pass. I think the media especially gave her a pass because she was a woman, because she wasn't Andrew Cuomo. They didn't hold her accountable for a lot of what I thought was the very obvious pay to play going on in the first year of her administration and a lot of the incompetence that was going on in the first year of her administration. And the problem is when you don't hold people accountable for those things, history repeats itself. So she almost loses the election to Lee Zeldin, which was mind-boggling given the pure political makeup of the state, right? Only 22% Republicans in the entire state of New York. She only beats him by five and a half points. And then what is her first act that she does? She gives away the pay raise for free 
to the Albany politicians, which the pay raise is the greatest point of leverage any politician has. George Pataki knew that. Andrew Cuomo knew that. It is your point to leverage the moment in order to get other things for the state done that the legislature wouldn't want to give. She gives it to them for free because her whole mantra is, I'm not Andrew Cuomo. And it's like, look, lady, no one confuses you for Andrew Cuomo, I promise you. So you don't need to keep you know, reinforcing that point by doing stupid things. So she gives away the pay raise for free. They turn around and screw her on the judge. They make her the first governor in history of the state of New York to lose a court of appeals nomination fight on the floor. Hector LaSalle, respected jurist, sitting up there all by himself in the balcony of the Senate of the uh, the Senate chamber in the state capitol while his vote goes down, while she's sitting in the front row of the Michael Kors fashion show with Anna Wintour. You couldn't have scripted the moment any better to sort of summarize the state of things in Albany. And now you get to the budget. And the budget is so hugely important mm-hmm. this year. There's so many important things on the line and nothing is getting done. And last week, they went home. They went home before April 1st. They went home on March 31st. Their constitutional (laughs) obligation to get the budget done by April 1st. And on March 31st, they said, we're packing it in. We're going home for the weekend. And they go home. They come back Monday, and she gives them a one-week extender. And they say, we're going to work real hard, and we're going to get this done. And then the staff went home. The holidays started. The members went home. Everyone's off with their families and on vacation. I promise you, Andrew, John, if, I, if Andrew Cuomo were still governor, if I was still secretary, we would have held their feet to the fire. You use the pressure of the holidays to get them to broker a deal. Absolutely. You keep those you keep those members in Albany while they're sweating because their husbands and wives and children are saying, we've got plans this weekend. And you say, no, 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 no. You're not going anywhere until we get this done, which is our constitutional obligation to the people of New York. And you use that leverage in order to get them to start cutting deals they don't necessarily want to cut. But the problem with this governor is she does not understand leverage. Well, she I'm, does I'm not hoping, understand I'm how hoping, to negotiate. I'm hoping she's getting the courage. You know, she's a tough Irish girl. I'm hoping she's getting the courage because the, the city and the st- uh, politics aside, the city and the state depend on it. I mean, 484,000 people have left already. At what point? Look, John, I, I appreciate your optimism, but I don't know what she has done to make you continue to be hopeful. Oh, no, no. I mean, this is like- just this is hopeful because we're going to fall off the cliff. New York State I is going to fall off the cliff if she doesn't succeed at least it, a little bit. It, it, you know, to that point, M- Melissa, let me ask. Who we got is, a, by the way, we've got a minute left, so, so we can, let's so get very, in whatever we quick, got. Very quickly, then. Who is the adult in the room right now? I'm, I'm looking at Hochul. I'm looking at Stuart Cousins. I'm looking at Hasty, and I'm just wondering, who's the adult in that room? You know, I don't know if it's who's the adult in the room. I think it's who's the person in the room who can get something done. And right now, I mean, my money would be closer on the two leaders doing a two-way budget and going around her than them landing this plane. Because they're circling around the drain without any direction at this point. And I don't know what's going to ultimately break the logjam. Well, thank you, uh, Melissa DeRosa. And uh, we, we fight together to for, for our city, our state. And thank you for everything you do, and and we'll catch up again real soon. And get ready for your regular show. Great to talk with you guys. Talk soon. Thank well, you. Well, uh, Andrew, I understand you. Uh, that, that was a great discussion. I mean, look, it's the facts of life.